0: famous scottish physician sometime after he was awarded the nobel prize in physiology and medicine declared when i woke up just before dawn on 28 september 1928 i certainly didn't plan to revolutionize all medicine by discovering the world's first antibiotic or bacteria killer but i suppose that's exactly what i did alexander fleming's discovery of penicillin remains one of the most inspiring stories of absolute luck and powerful observation skills in scientific history. A brilliant but chronically untidy experimental chemist at St. Mary's Hospital in London, Fleming had actually left a huge pile of germ cultures heaped up in a corner of the laboratory as he left to go on vacation. On returning, he noticed that one of those petri dishes had become contaminated with some kind of blue-green mold. Around the mold, the dish was completely clear of bacteria. He took time to notice that. That was probably his genius moment. And then after studying it, he had the presence of mind to ask, why did that happen? And that, people, was the beginning of the Nobel Prize discovery, penicillin. It was a wonder drug that saved many thousands of lives throughout World War II. The methods that he used to discover that drug led to the development of many other antimicrobial drugs in the following decade. But in my opinion, his true brilliance was not the accidental discovery of penicillin and being smart enough to notice it, but it was his prediction. He actually predicted that overuse of the drug would lead to it being ineffective. And then he watched along with the rest of the world as the natural effectiveness of the drug declined. Paradise won and then lost all in a few decades. Penicillin is one, but not the only, antibiotic invented that has subsequently been transformed into becoming ineffective. Although antibiotics have transformed the medical treatment of bacterial illness and offered hope to many patients with formerly deadly infections, the mishandling and misprescription of these drugs has transformed the bacterial population in ways that many antibiotics have partially or even entirely lost their efficacy. There are methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus, which is sometimes called MRSA. There's vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, multidrug-resistant mycobacterium tuberculosis, carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae. You get the picture. Many more. And this problem is growing. The problem is severe enough that many experts predict that if we don't change how we're using antibiotics, the existing therapies may be worthless within the next century. However, some also believe that with a proper response to the current trend in antibiotic resistance, these drugs might once again serve their original function. So the million dollar question is, how do we keep these incredible drugs effective so that they'll work when we need them? You won't be surprised when I tell you that Mayo Clinic has been working on this problem for many decades. And today, we've invited some experts to talk about our antibiotic stewardship program. I learned something interesting every time I talk with these two, and I know you will too, so I'm very excited to have them here. Welcome to Key into Quality, a Mayo Clinic podcast that focuses on healthcare quality, experience, and affordability trends and solutions. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Timothy Morgenthaler, a professor of medicine here at Mayo Clinic and the vice chair of Mayo Clinic Quality and Affordability. Co-hosting with me today is Sherry Nemec. Sherry?
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome and welcome to our guest today. I'm Sherry Nemec, Consultation Relationship Manager for Quality at Mayo Clinic. And I would guess that many, if not most of our listeners, myself included, have needed antibiotics at one time or another. So today's topic is both relevant and important.
0: So today, our guests are Dr. Abenash Virk and Ryan Stevens. Dr. Virk is an infectious disease consultant and professor of medicine here at Mayo Clinic She's the chair of the Enterprise Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at Mayo Clinic, and I have to tell you, she's just a wonderful person to work with. Dr. Virk, maybe could you just share with us a little bit, how did you get here to Mayo Clinic, how long have you been here, and what sort of things are you doing in the recent years at Mayo Clinic?
2: Thank you, Dr. Morgenthaler, and thank you, Sherry, for inviting us. Um, I've been here in Rochester, Minnesota Mayo Clinic since 1994. I came here for my infectious disease fellowship and have been on staff since 1997. I have had my finger in many pies within infectious diseases, but over the last decade or so, my interest has really been uh, focused on antimicrobial stewardship among other clinical interests within infectious diseases, but antimicrobial stewardship has been really kind of close to my heart because of all the reasons that you just outlined.
0: Uh, thanks so much. And, and just, you know, because she's very humble, I'm just going to also tell you, she's obviously an expert in infectious diseases and in the topic we're going to talk about today, but she has also really participated and led many other quality improvement activities at Mayo Clinic, not all having to do with infectious disease. And she actually has a gold-level certification at the Mayo Clinic Quality Academy. So uh, thanks for joining us today. Our second guest is Dr. Ryan Stevens. He's an infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist, and he's an assistant professor of pharmacy at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. He co-chairs the Mayo Clinic Enterprise Outpatient Antimicrobial Stewardship Program. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion, too. To kick us off, we've actually had a series of podcasts centering around the concept of stewardship. And it's kind of a funny word, I think, that has climbed into medicine practice overall. Maybe I could ask Dr. Virk to start off. I mean, how did you first get interested in this particular problem? And how did you sort of begin to conceive of how you were going to help us deal with it? How did you get started?
2: You know, I think before I get into the specifics of how I started, I think it is really important for us to really kind of point out and acknowledge how critically important and how remarkable antimicrobials are in the advancement of medical care. I mean, honestly, you know, for us to uh, treat these really serious infections, like you mentioned, Dr. Morgenthaler, For us to have patients who can safely have uh, surgical procedures, whether it's uh, placement of prosthetic joints or pacemakers or other serious interventions, you know, you couldn't have really done that safely without prophylactic antibiotics. When we look at, you know, advancement of medical care, we look at all these chemotherapy patients, patients who are on immunosuppressive therapies, who have infectious complications, and without us being able to treat those infectious complications, the outcomes of those treatments of cancer or immunosuppression of other autoimmune diseases or others would have been really difficult. So I think it's really important for us to acknowledge the significance of uh, antimicrobials in the advancement of medical care. Back in the 60s, as you mentioned, after penicillin and the sulfur drugs and others were identified, we were literally in the heydays of antibiotics. And around that time, Alexander Fleming had mentioned the fact that you can have emergence of resistance. And in fact, in his acceptance speech, what he said, and I'm going to quote here, he said that, in cases the thoughtless person playing with penicillin is morally responsible for the death of the man who finally succumbs to infection with a penicillin resistant organism. He's really talking about, we have to be careful. We have to be stewards of these antibiotics. I'm gonna quote again. He says, I hope this evaluation can be averted.
0: Wow, that's impressive Mm -hmm. with his foresight, isn't it?
2: Isn't it? And that's 1945, right? Yeah, yeah. Soon after that, you know, as we got new drugs, we started to see emergence of resistance. And in the 70s and 80s, we started having calls for antimicrobial stewardship. But because we were in this in the heyday of great number of new antibiotics and we didn't see that much resistance, uh, there was a lot more kind of freewheeling of antibiotics that went on. But in the last decade, particularly the number of resistant organisms and the number that are multi-drug resistant or even totally resistant organisms has exponentially increased all over the world. And this is not only because of human antibiotic use, it's because of agricultural antibiotics, because antibiotics in animals, and how this whole world is totally interconnected. We know that when people travel from one place to another, if they are traveling to an area where there's higher number of resistant organisms in their water or in their food, etc., people can come back to their home country with drug-resistant organisms. And so when you think of this whole interconnectedness of the world and the difference of years, whether it's human, agriculture, or animal, it is such a complex problem. It really makes, makes me think of what all we can do. And I do know that essentially we, whatever we do now is going to have an impact on the future generations. And we know that we can actually do things now that can prevent the catastrophic future that we think might happen. And so just thinking that what we do now is going to impact the future is really something that makes me think that this is somewhere we need to spend more time on and we haven't really spent that much time. So in 2014, President Obama had declared an executive order that antimicrobial resistance is really a national security threat. And at that time, they convened a number of uh, groups from CDC and others to figure out what all do we need to do to prevent resistance. And that was around the time that I really got involved with this. And I realized that we had a lot of opportunities within Mayo Clinic for us to do more.
0: Wow. That really is an incredible story that you related tonight. It just makes me go back to what you were saying about Fleming when he says it's a moral responsibility because it is clear that. Our choices in how we use antibiotics are not just about us or the person in front of us, but it's really a global concern, which is where the stewardship concept comes in. Ryan, could you expound a bit into uh, this concept? We had a whole podcast that was really discussing outpatient stewardship. How do these two come together in your mind?
3: And I should start by saying that I spent the first 10 years of my career doing inpatient antimicrobial stewardship, which, as Dr. Burke alluded to, is really where this all began and sort of where antimicrobial stewards cut their teeth is on the inpatient side. I'm sure that when I started in 2019 and I was standing in an elevator with Dr. Berg and she said, hey, what do you think about co-chairing the outpatient stewardship efforts here as Mayo Clinic expands into that? And I stood there with a look of sort of dumbfoundedness, (laughs) wide-eyed in the elevator. I wasn't really sure what I was getting myself into, but what I've come to understand is the importance of the outpatient realm and how much weight this actually carries in the overall consumption of antimicrobials, just essentially human consumption of antimicrobials. So the CDC estimates that about 80 to 90% of human antimicrobial consumption takes place in the outpatient setting. So though we've had robust and large programs focused on improving antimicrobial use and optimizing antimicrobial use on the inpatient side, we've been essentially neglecting 80 to 90% of human consumption over time. In that sense, what makes outpatient really exciting, what continues to uh, generate my interest in the topic, is just that it's really the final frontier of antimicrobial stewardship. We've talked about stewarding inpatient use. We have guidelines and core elements for stewarding use in nursing homes, in critical access hospitals. We have sort of increasing regulation around antimicrobial consumption in the animal population. And so outpatient medicine really makes up a huge bulk of usage and a very interesting Place to try to intervene on it. And so specifically, when you think about the inpatient setting, a lot of times you have a patient stay that's days to weeks in duration. You have the sort of nimbleness to be able to change antimicrobials on the fly if you need to as a result of ongoing information. Versus the outpatient side, we're talking about a lot of providers spread across over a large number of clinics with a huge amount of sort of geographic variability. And a lot of times those prescriptions are not necessarily going through only internal pharmacies, but they're being routed through all kinds of external pharmacies, which sort of limits the ability to control and steward these things well. So it represents a a tremendous challenge as to how to best implement stewardship in that setting, given that it sort of deviates from what we know and what we've come to know about how to do it on the inpatient side.
1: Yeah, so I'm beginning to appreciate what a large, complex issue that this is with your opening comments. And so obviously it's going to take a lot of people to come together to try to address it. So Dr. Burke, as you got started,
2: who did you involve in this work at Mail? So back in 2014, 2015, we were mostly working in Rochester. We had a very robust program that started back in 1980s. We had uh, physicians who were working on antimicrobial stewardship activities and pharmacists. One of our pharmacists has been really critical in the development of our program, uh, Lynn Estes. And but that was just the Rochester program. And as I alluded to, that there was this executive order, presidential executive order you know, there was a groundswell within the country that we all need to do more. And so in 2016, the Joint Commission actually announced standards that every hospital needed to have for antimicrobial stewardship. And that was focused on the inpatient side because as Ryan alluded to, that there's much more has been happening at uh, most institutions on the inpatient side because it's a very controlled environment. We can have the data. We know exactly what the antibiotics got ordered. We can escalate, deescalate very quickly. That, you know, it was a lot of places had some amount of inpatient antimicrobial stewardship, and that's what the Joint Commission initially focused on. But as we started to look at the requirements, we also realized that many of the locations within Mayo Clinic were not really up to speed or as good as Rochester stewardship activities were. And so we first went to leadership. We told them this was a big problem. We got their support. We then started to develop a team that included physicians, pharmacists, nurses, educators, administrators, system engineers, to really try and do a gap analysis to see where are we with each of our regions in terms of stewardship activities on the inpatient side. And we actually met on a weekly basis for the first year and a year and a half to implement a number of different aspects of antimicrobial stewardship. To make it happen, we had to talk to hospital practice committees, we had to talk to Mayo Clinic clinical practice committees, we had to go to a number of committees to make sure that the things that we were requesting for to implement, they were going to be supported and happen. And so now we have a team at each of our hospital hubs or the regions that really mirror the central kind of executive team, so to speak. We have a physician stewardship leader. We have a pharmacist stewardship leader. We have people from education administrators who really help us administer the antimicrobial stewardship programs at each of our sites.
0: You were starting to get me a little nervous when you started mentioning all of the committees that you had to go through (laughs) with this work, because as somebody who's lived a little bit of that life, committees can be great friends uh, once they're behind you, or they can kind of slow progress sometimes. Uh, Other than organizational structures, what were some of the other big challenges or interdependencies that you all became aware of as you started dealing with this?
3: Yeah. So as Dr. Burke mentioned, ID pharmacists, infectious disease pharmacists and physicians have traditionally sort of been in the driver's seat as far as being the the administrators of stewardship programs. But there's a ton of interdependency within other specialties. And a few key ones that I would sort of mention is, is I, I say tongue in cheek often that I've made a career of offering unsolicited advice, which is sometimes what stewardship can feel like, because we're never really the owners of That patient-specific care. We're always offering advice to the primary care team in order to try to optimize the antimicrobial use. And so in that sense, we can't have a larger interdependency than that with the primary care teams, be that either on the inpatient or the outpatient side. And so developing strong relationships with the teams where we're a valued and trusted resource is really important to our antimicrobial stewardship teams across the whole enterprise. Another key advocate and interdependency that we have with stewardship is the way that we leverage the microbiology lab. As microbiology changes, clinical medicine changes, and as medicine changes, antimicrobial use changes. And so we're linked together very close, and we work together to do different things like the way that we display different antimicrobials and susceptibility reports, the way that new rapid diagnostic testing is rolled out, so on and so forth. And then the third one I would mention is specifically Infection Prevention and Control, or IPAC. Uh, there are certain infections that are hospital acquired that are a result of antimicrobial use, the most notable being Clostridium difficile or, or C. diff colitis. And so we work with our infection prevention colleagues to uh, try to optimize antimicrobial use in order to prevent and try to decrease the amount of, of C. diff that's acquired in our institutions. So that's a key one. The last one that I'll mention is informatics. And as we move into more and more of uh, informatics heavy or IT heavy age, uh, we're learning more and more about how critical it is to have informatics support to be able to understand how we operationalize these tools in the electronic health record to make them sort of usable for our team and uh, most optimal for the teams that are receiving our recommendations. So yeah, several yeah. interdependencies.
0: I want to ask a, a kind of a detail, but just, I think this will help our listeners highlight one of the things you talked about. As a physician who's practiced in the hospital, I see a patient. I'm worried that they have an infection. I order a culture. Describe for the listeners a little bit, what am I going to get back from the laboratory? And how does that sort of intersect with some of the concepts that you just raised?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the culture will be collect improved care of the one patient. But the other unintended consequence of antimicrobials that Dr. Fleming alluded to in his speech that we've already talked about now, which is The fact that the more we use an antimicrobial, the less effective they become. And so, what we do in our patients today will impact what happens in our patients tomorrow. And so, what can be a big challenge with antimicrobial stewardship is there are direct things that you can observe, like the raw tonnage of antimicrobials you're utilizing or direct patient outcomes. But there's also some things that can be less easy to observe in the short term, which is things like changes to the microbiology in Rochester, Minnesota. And how does the way that we change antimicrobial use in our institutions, both inpatient and outpatient, change the bugs that we're seeing in our community? And that's a really slow process that happens very slowly and over time. And so it can be hard for those of us that want to see really quick outcomes and very quick gains. Sometimes antimicrobial stewardship is a matter of playing the long game and recognizing that there's longitudinal impacts to the work that's being done today.
1: So Dr. Virk, in this, we'll call it a long journey, you've had a lot of years experience in this work. Have you ever had any surprises along the way? I think the
2: surprises have actually been more of the pleasant surprise. Yeah, there are some, uh, you know, uncomfortable surprises as well. But the the most pleasant surprise that I've had is I'm always amazed at how interested and willing providers are to help make changes. For example, as Ryan mentioned, you know, we are interdependent on our internal medicine colleagues or other services. And, you know, every time we approach them and we say, okay, this is the problem. This is what we want to do. We are always received with positivity as opposed to oh, don't come to me and I don't want to hear this. That of not wanting to listen to us or not wanting to take our advice is a smaller proportion of that, but most of the providers are very willing to look at uh, what we want to recommend. The other negative part of the surprise is that I'm always saddened to see how rapidly evolving this field is in terms of evolving resistance. You know, just a few years ago, we never even talked about Drug resistant candida or multiply resistant yeast infections. But now we have a really uh, drug resistant candida that people can potentially get in the United States. And so, you know, it's a rapidly evolving field. We have to continually evolve and improve our methods of detection, methods of intervention. And those are that these opportunities of improvement continue on a regular basis.
0: So if you were going to outline for our listeners now, what are the main components of our current antimicrobial stewardship program? You know, what are they and what do you see as the next steps?
2: Main components of antimicrobial stewardship are really having a team in place that can actually do the work, because if you don't have that, you're never going to get anywhere. Again, it depends on whether we're talking about inpatient or outpatient, But we really have to have a method to identify the problems, you know, so how do you identify the problems? You really identify them based on either is the right drug being used for the right syndrome? Is the right duration being used for the right syndrome? For example, you can kind of look at indications and say, all the patients in the hospital with community-acquired pneumonia, how many of them got what is called the guideline-concordant treatment? And those that are not guideline-concordant, you know, how can we intervene? How can we educate? How can we change things? And so you kind of have to have a series of things that are accepted as the norm and then you need to measure them and see how are we doing according to those norms and then try and identify how can we intervene on those and there are many methods of intervention uh, in the hospital you can do immediate you know interventions by calling the team and say hey you know you can stop the meropenem and put them on ceftraxone Whereas in the outpatient, you really have to do pre-prescription education, even before that prescription is actually written, because once it's written, it's gone. And then you you can only give data feedback to the providers after it's already happened, but you can't intervene as the prescription is being written. And then finally, that data piece, as uh, Ryan was mentioning, without having that data, it's hard to kind of know where you are, how are you doing, how can we improve? And a large part of this really is the electronic health system or health record. You know, back when we were doing all this by paper, my gosh, it was really hard. It was really hard to capture all of the data. But now with the electronic health record, we have access to a lot of data that can allow us to improve uh, the care that we are providing our patients.
3: And as far as as next step goes, I think Like I said, the the stewardship priorities are always evolving. And I think we learned that uh, dramatically during the pandemic when all of a sudden we had new antivirals that needed to be stewarded and we had new drugs or old drugs that were being repurposed that we needed to understand how this impacts it. We also had a viral illness and we had to make sure that we were responsibly using respiratory antibiotics or antibacterials during the course of sort of admissions and, and managing patients with COVID 19. And so, that was a big challenge. Um, so, so understanding sort of how emergency preparedness and pandemic response and those things interface with stewardship is important. There's also this concept of squeezing the balloon, which is sort of as you intervene on one thing, then something else may balloon out. And so if you if you tackle drug A, then patient, you know, providers may just use more of drug B. I don't think the stewardship work is ever done because it's always shifting priorities and evolving priorities. The last thing I would say for next steps is just that the stewardship community has to keep up with technology advancements. And this happens in the micro lab and this happens with artificial intelligence. And so understanding how we use artificial intelligence in order to impact the identification of patients who are key candidates for stewardship is really important. And then also how we use new rapid diagnostic tests. And a great example of this is sort of the outlined process where I said this takes up to 72 hours there's some diagnostic tests for blood cultures where we can now get the same amount of information in six hours. Well, that now means that if we have the information, we have to find a way to operationalize it and get that information into the hands of providers so that rapid decisions can be made and interpreted correctly. And so that oftentimes comes with stewardship intervention and leveraging the stewardship team to take this new information or these rapidly available tests and taking them to the clinicians with recommendations.
1: So Ryan, if I was an organization that wanted to get started, you know, with developing a stewardship program or maybe, you know, trying to advance one a little, what what recommendations might you have?
3: Well, I think you can probably gather that um, our team here is huge and we have a lot of organizational support in order to make that happen. So I think the first thing that someone that was looking to start brand new or even to bridge into a new care Mm -hmm. setting would need to do is make sure that they had the backing of organizational leadership because it's gonna take resourcing. It just, it's just part of the, the nature of this beast is it it takes a lot of resourcing in informatics and pharmacy and physician time and microbiology and so on and so forth. So definitely make sure organizational leadership is on board and there's all kinds of papers and, and sort of roadmaps as to how to effectively do that. The second thing I would say is to set clear goals Sometimes I think you try to boil the ocean and it will happen very slowly versus if you can identify areas that are clear opportunities in your institution and tackle them one at a time, you'll be more likely to be successful than if you try to take on too much at once. And then the last thing is to just really consult with people in the field who've had success with this in the past. Again, it's not a new a new topic. It's been evolving over the last couple of decades. and so. There's a, a large and engaged community. And I would say if, if you're looking to bridge into something, you know, reach out to folks who have done this before and get their opinion about where they might start.
0: That's fantastic. Dr. Virk, I'm gonna ask you a, a tough question. It's five years from now, and you're on the speaker podium, gonna talk about the latest development in antimicrobial stewardship. What would you think would be likely to come out of your mouth at that point? What's the future hold for us here?
2: I think the future really is going to be uh, more uh, utilization of informatics, as uh, Ryan mentioned. And one of that is going to be artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence is still kind of a very new field in medicine. But we have an amazing amount of data within our EHR and that data can be used to help us improve patient care. We just have to learn how to do that. And I do see, uh, we currently have two AI projects uh, here within Rochester related, one related to antimicrobial stewardship, another one also related to uh, antimicrobial toxicity. And this is for patients on IV antibiotics who are leaving the hospital on IV antibiotics. And so we will learn through these projects and i know other areas are also using these to help you know how do we use the systems we have to help us take better care of patients and and for us to continue to essentially work with our teams and work with our shared partners to improve patient care
0: so thank you so much for sharing that kind of vision with us and that, you know for our listeners Uh, Some of you may or may not know, just last week, Mayo Clinic entered into a partnership arrangement with Mercy Health, headquartered in St. Louis, to really unite in a de-identified manner all of the patient records. So we're talking over 500 million patient records that are going to come together and help with these efforts using artificial intelligence And so those will be their entire inpatient and outpatient records. It's going to be a fertile field for this sort of thing to develop. It's very exciting to think about how things will change as we have so much more analytic capacity to guide our decisions. For right now, unfortunately, we have to bring this podcast to a close. I'm so glad that you two could join us. And I appreciate so much your expertise, not only in helping us take care of our patients, but in helping uh, our listeners learn more about antimicrobial stewardship. We're coming to the close of Mayo Clinic's Key into Quality podcast, which aims to help you take some of those first steps to address extremely important quality challenges in your organization. The development of this podcast is part of our effort to be a valued resource to healthcare organizations across the globe who are striving to improve. Our goal is to improve quality for patients and the populations that we all serve. Let us know if you've enjoyed this podcast, give us your suggestions for topics and improvement, and share the podcast with others across your organization so the information can be spread. Until next time, goodbye.